All right. If uh, we see a few of those branches waving once or twice yet during the service, you will not get kicked out, at least not by me. I remember back in grade 11 and 12 of my high school years, uh, I was at a place where I was very passionate about my Christian life. I remember my older brother, not nearly as spiritual as me, only aspiration was to be a farmer. He was a very ordinary guy with no special gifts like me. We were in the barn together one day, working together, milking cows actually, and I remember me telling him about all the great things I was going to do for God with my life. And him challenging me not to get arrogant. I mean, the audacity of that guy. He dropped out of school in grade 9. Even in grade 9, he failed most of his courses. He was not nearly as brilliant as me. He had no public ministry gifts like me. He couldn't even properly put two words together and speak them in front of people without stumbling over them. And here he is challenging me the great Darren Plett, the mover and shaker, the straight-A student, the one who knew his entire Bible, and the one who was going to go out and convert everyone to Christianity, the one who was going to change the world for Jesus, no matter what the cost, and he is challenging me not to become arrogant. Who does he think he is getting in the way of me becoming the great world-changer for Jesus? I mean, really... And I remember very clearly, my blood pressure was rising inside of me, and I was standing in the aisle of the barn, and I pointed my finger at him, and I yelled at him, I will never be like all the other Christians around, just average, mediocre people. I am going to make a difference for God. I'm going to go all out for God, and I was going to be extraordinary. And I remember him rather quietly sitting behind the cows with milk machine in hand, looking at me, and saying, Darren, just remember, don't get arrogant. And when I think of that now, I'm embarrassed. I am embarrassed, and I'm incredibly, incredibly grateful. I'm embarrassed about that verbal exchange. I'm even more embarrassed that it took me as long to realize what was going on as it did and I'm incredibly grateful. I'm grateful that my older brother, still the farmer, still the one with no public speaking ability, but oh, so much wiser than me that he didn't give up on me. I want to speak this morning for a few minutes about being willing to be an ordinary Christian. Yes, I want to challenge you to be willing to be an ordinary Christian. I hope that you are thinking, that is going to take a little bit of clarification, Darren. And I am about to set out on that journey exactly to try to clarify that for the next few minutes. And I want to invite you to do that journey together with me. Uh, so I'm not quite sure how many of you, after the email was sent out on Friday with the bulletin and the little uh, note encouraging you to read a few chapters in 1 Corinthians 
uh, chapter 4 and chapter 7 and chapter 8, so three, three different chapters there. If you did, I would have loved to have heard your initial thoughts, because I will be honest with you, the message that I'm going to preach this morning is going to be not at all like the one that I had first envisioned that I would be preaching when I first read these chapters several months ago as we were preparing for uh, this series uh, in the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, first of all, chapter 4 seems like a very strange dialogue where, where Paul is talking about what it is like for him to be an apostle and a strange mix of him kind of talking about himself and, and then almost it seems like he dives into a little bit of a pity party for himself and then, and then he turns around and kind of challenges his re readers to be willing to be servants. Uh, chapter 7, I'm not sure how many of you would love to hear a detailed uh, kind of explanation of chapter 7. Uh, that's a really strange chapter where it seems as though Paul is kind of trying to explain, you know, about how it would be good for people to not get married and, uh, and it just seems really strange. And then chapter 8, which actually Brendan did speak about already a couple of weeks ago, I just want to kind of tie that in or show you how that connects. Um, so what in the world do these, where, in chapter 8, by the way, where it talks about food being offered to idols and whether we should or shouldn't eat that. Uh, uh, so what do these three kind of unique, um, very um, separate messages, what do they have in common? Why do we put these three chapters together? What, what ties them together? Well, as you read, you, you get the impression that each of these chapters is in some way a response from Paul to the people, and it sounds as though the people are asking him questions. And it sounds as though the questions that the people are asking him are somewhat similar in nature, though very, sim very different in, in specifics, they are similar in, in nature. And I think if we would generally summarize the question uh, would go something like this. What could we do that would really show that we are passionate, on fire, all out followers of Jesus? What could we do that would really show everybody that we are really on fire, passionate, all out followers of Jesus? And in each of these chapters it appears as though Paul answers that general question as pertains to a very specific circumstance. So let's start with chapter 4. Uh, Paul's answer to this general question, chapter 4, uh, verse 1. He says, um, so then, so he's, he's responding to something. So then, men ought to regard us as servants of Christ. Very basic, very simple, and very ordinary, in some ways at least. There's nothing there challenging the reader to go out with pomp and flair, changing the world for Jesus. Oh, oh, that might happen, maybe, maybe not. But see, that's not the issue. That is not your responsibility. That is not the responsibility of the servant. The responsibility of a servant is simply to say yes 
to his master and then follow through. Here the challenge to us is simply is be the kind of people that other people will regard as servants of Christ. The, the idea here is very significant. See, here's a young, kind of an enthusiastic, passionate, energy-filled, all-out-for-Jesus group of people that fill this little church, and, and they're asking Paul, what should, listen carefully, what should it look like to other people when you are really passionate, committed follower of Jesus? And if you keep reading into verses 2 and 3 and 4, you're going to see, Paul says, no, no, uh, I, I don't live life like that. You don't, you don't live life with that kind of a focus. What should it look like? In fact, Paul says, it doesn't really matter what people think of you or how they judge you. What really matters is what God thinks of you and how he sees you. And the best way I can describe what that should look like would be for you to be a servant. When people look at you, they should see servants. What? But that's too common. That's too ordinary. I mean, I want to do amazing things for God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can appreciate that. On the one hand. I mean, those are, those are great dreams in a way. And I'm glad that you're passionate for God. The problem is almost always... That that kind of passion is accompanied by an element of, of wanting to be someone that will be noticed for great things that they are doing. And it almost always includes some level of comparison with others. People that are not visibly doing great things for God. People that are only milking cows. An element that I struggled with huge back in my high school years. And yet, my brother was right, often there is an element of arrogance connected with wanting to be above normal, wanting to be better than average, wanting to be more than mediocre, aspiring to be someone that will do great things for God. If you keep reading here in chapter 4, and as you get to chapter, uh, verse 6 and 7, might be a little hard to understand at first, but let me read it and then explain it. Now, brothers, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not take pride in one man over against another. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Do not go beyond what is written. Do not aspire to be different or better or above everyone else. Remember, whatever abilities you have, it's, it's all a gift from God. Every ability that you have, you are given. Don't pride yourself in being a better public speaker than your farming brother, if in fact you are. That's of no credit to you. That just means that God gave that gift or, or that ability to you and he's asking you to be faithful with it. It doesn't matter who you are or what your gifts and abilities are. Your aspiration should be the same as everybody else's aspiration. And that is 
to be a humble, committed servant, faithful with the gift that God has given you, whatever that gift or that ability is. And it's of no credit to you. Your job is not to be better than or above others or more than or great. Your job is to be a humble, committed servant, just like everyone else. I can't take the time to point out all the details in this chapter that kind of give evidence of the fact that this is the, the, the overall general question that Paul is speaking to here. But I do need to quickly show you a couple of words uh, in verses 18 to 20. As you jump down all the way to verse 18, my brother would like this. Actually, he probably would take no pride in it. Some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you. Paul says, but I will come very soon, if the Lord is willing, and then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they actually have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. And we go, well, what, what do you mean? I mean, I mean surely the, the, the talker is the one that is most passionate in his Christian life. Uh, I say that tongue-in-cheek, of course. But often, I, I have to confess, we kind of assume that. The one who says it most often, the one who has the, the dreams and the visions and, and speaks about it, the one who has the ability to pray most profoundly, or the one who has the ability to speak and rally the troops, or the one who can put together a great message and preach it to the crowds and rally the troops. Surely he is the most passionate worker for Jesus. Surely he's the one that's beyond normal, doing great things. Hang on a second. What does Paul say here? Actually, the ability to talk is a very poor gauge of someone's spiritual depth and commitment. The ability to talk is a very poor gauge of someone's spiritual depth and commitment. At least, that's what Paul says here. For the kingdom of God is, is not about talk, but about power. The kingdom of God is not about being great at talking and about great at doing, uh, talking about doing great things. The kingdom of God is about humbly getting things done. Oh, if you are the one with the gift of public speaking or public praying or sharing your testimonies or how God is working, fantastic, keep doing it. Absolutely, you are to be faithful with the gift that God has given you, certainly. But not for a minute does it put you in a higher spiritual strata than the person sitting next to you who has absolutely no gift to speak whatsoever but has countless other gifts. We are simply called to be servants, called to say yes to the gifts that God has entrusted to us. And if you would read uh, uh, these verses that we skipped over, verses 8 to 17 here, Paul challenges the people not to look down on the ones that have gone before them. It's kind of an interesting phenomenon, actually, but it's something that I certainly noticed about my generation um, as we were going through the growing up years and the young adult years. And I, I think it's generally fair to say that this is a strong temptation. It's a strong temptation for each generation to want to be better than the previous generation. And like I said, it was true of my generation, certainly. Um, kind of... Better at expressing our worship. Better at our theology. We understand it better. 
better at verbalizing it and teaching it, better at living it, better at doing, more efficient at doing missions. And, and we tend to somehow look down on the generation prior to us. And, and these verses here, 8 to 17, they challenge very strongly against that. Uh, do not look down on the generation prior to yours. Your job is exactly the same as theirs. Simply be a humble servant. Say yes to what God is calling you to be. I remember uh, somewhere around seven years ago, there may be a few youth here this morning that will remember this also, uh, I was asked to be the van driver for the day, I think it was for the junior youth group, and we get, went to, uh, to Altona, to this uh, big splash event in Altona, this big youth event, and it was a big deal, and there was all kinds of games and partying and stuff, and there was loud music and worship, and, and they had flown in this big speaker from, from down in the U.S. someplace. He was kind of a rah-rah, kind of a fire speaker, and he was trying to get the youth all psyched up to be great and amazing world changers, and he used David and Moses and Joseph and Daniel and Peter as examples, and he called on the youth, make it your aspiration to be great world changers like these guys. And I felt like jumping up and saying, but, but how many of them had that aspiration when they were growing up that they would be world changers? Actually, none of them. For all of them, their aspiration simply was to be a humble servant. And God took care of the rest. All they did is keep saying yes. They kept saying yes. And, and see, God has this, this incredible way of, of, of using humble, ordinary people and doing big, extraordinary things through them. But it's God who does it, not us. We are simply, all of us, equally the same, called to be humble servants that say yes. Faithful with a trust. Regarded as, seen as, humble servants. So that's chapter 4. Are you still tracking with me? We're now going to jump to chapter 7. That's that weird marriage chapter, you know, about people, uh, whether people should or shouldn't get married. Now, how am I going to, how am I going to bridge the gap? Well, uh, Try again to track with me a little bit here. Uh, jump to chapter 7. Uh, and this, this, this crazy chapter, but whether it's better to not get married or to get married, to have sex or not have sex, and on and on. Uh, here's what I want to suggest. If you listen to how Paul starts the chapter in verse 1, uh, again it sounds like Paul is answering a question. He, because he starts like this. Uh, now, for the matters you wrote about. So... Now, in answer to the questions that you asked, could be another way of translating that. Paul says, uh, it's good for a man not to marry, uh, but since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And then he goes on to talk about them fulfilling their marital duty to each other uh, and on and on. Now, I want to suggest that again there was a question from this young, passionate, on-fire group of Christians to Paul, and I want to suggest that that question 
may very well have gone something like this. So, so Paul, if I really want to show that I am a sold-out Christian on fire for God, would it be better if I didn't get married? Would that show how sold-out I am for God? Or what about if I am already married? Would it show how sold-out I am for God if I would deny myself and my partner the pleasure of having sex? Or, or what about if I am married and my spouse is not yet a Christian? Would it prove how passionate I am about putting God first in my life if I would actually leave my non-Christian partner and focus only on worshiping you, God? Or what about if I'm engaged to be married to this beautiful woman and I would deny myself the pleasure of marriage? Would that show how totally I have shifted my focus from the pleasures of this world and the pleasures of this earth to heaven? Do you see how the basis of this question is actually very much the same as the basis for the question that they were asking in, in chapter 4? I mean, what kind of radical, unordinary, extreme thing can I do to show how passionate I am for God? And as Paul embarks on answering these questions, he finds himself in a little bit of a dilemma. See, because Paul wants to complement their passion and their desire to go all out for God. He wants to complement that. He wants to bless that. He wants to say that's good. But at the same time, he doesn't want to misrepresent what the kingdom of God is really all about. And so Paul says something like this. Well, yes, if you feel that your gift is to not be married, remember what we just finished saying about gifts? A humble servant's job is to say yes. So, if you feel that your gift is to not be married, if that is how God has wired you, then, then you say yes to God, of course, and you don't get married. And, and yes, like, like in my circumstances, there will be certain benefits that will come with that. In some ways, you are going to be able to better serve God as a result of that. You will simply have less distractions in life if you don't have a partner and you don't have any children. But, 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 but hang on. But most of us are wired with physical attractions to the opposite sex and trying to be superhuman when you really aren't superhuman, when you really are a very normal person with normal attractions and desires, well, that can lead to all kinds of problems. If your human nature has desires, then be willing to admit that and be willing to be normal. Be willing to be ordinary and in a right, godly way satisfy your human nature. And friends, if you look at history, in certain parts of Christian religion, it has been viewed as extra spiritual if a man would stay single and not get married. If a man would somehow prove his devotion to God by denying himself the pleasure of being married and having sexual relations... And if you look at history, you will see that far too often that has resulted in secret gross immorality and too often in sexual abuse. Be willing to be normal. Be willing to admit that you have human, a human nature with human desires. In many parts of very conservative religion, women have often been told that they need to dress very conservatively 
and they are not allowed to dress in such a way that they appear too pretty or beautiful. After all, that would be succumbing to our human nature. And at the core of that lies this truth again. We will be better than average Christians. We will show how good we are by the way that we dress or we don't dress. We will deny that we are normal. I'm willing to discuss this further, but I believe I'm correct in saying that this very real rule, along with others like it, have usually contributed to sin rather than the opposite. See, we are wired the way we are. We are human. We have been created as sexual beings. And Paul is saying, you best live that out in a right, godly, beautifully sexual way. Trying to pretend that you are so holy that you don't need that, or that you are above that, or too good for that, is actually not helpful at all. Be willing to be normal. Maybe I should rather say, be willing to admit that you are normal. And so Paul answers their questions, which I would say could be, uh, likely be summarized something like this. Um, can I somehow prove my level of spiritual commitment by doing or not doing certain things? And Paul, in essence, says no. No. If you decide not to do those things out of your humble commitment to being God's servant, then that's fine. If you decide not to get married or do some other radical thing out of a humble commitment to being a servant of God, that's fine. But don't think that that will somehow elevate you to a higher spiritual strata than your fellow brothers and sisters who make different decisions. It is not these outer physical things that indicate your spiritual vitality. It is about being willing to be a humble, committed servant of God. You answer to God. Oh, and actually, seeing as we're talking about marriage, Paul says, well, let me remind you, even actually in your marriage, you are called to be a servant. When I started, I also mentioned chapter 8. Let me just make a little connection there. Show you how Paul actually continues this same thought about another question from the people. Take a look at how Paul begins chapter 8. Very similar in some ways. Uh, so he's finished this other topic, and then he says, uh, and now, about food sacrifice to idols. Uh, and likely he's answering another similar, very similar question, likely something like, so if we really, really, really want to be serious about our Christian life and show how on fire we are for God, would it be better if we didn't eat food sacrifice to idols? Or... And then there's this other group. They say, well, actually, if we really, really, really want to show how seriously we are about our Christian life, wouldn't it be good if we would show how free we are? And I can see Paul grimacing a little bit again. Ugh. And then as he writes the rest of chapter, or verse 1 and verse 2 in chapter 8, what does he say? What does he refer to? Immediately again, he refers to the problem of becoming arrogant. Yeah, 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 guys. Yeah, I, I, I know, I know. But be careful you don't become arrogant. Yeah, you guys know a lot of things. I, I, I get that. You, you, there's good points. You're all, you're all making good points. But we got to make sure that we're not trying to be one 
above the other or one better than the other or focused on being great, focused on being amazing. And so Paul in chapter 8 here, uh, a couple verses later, he brings it back and he says, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all things come and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things have come and through whom we live. When it comes right down to it, yeah, 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 you're free to do whatever you want to do when it comes to this matter. But again, please remember, you're a servant. Your servant. First to God, and then also to your fellow humans. Don't be so focused on trying to show how on fire you are for God. Don't be so focused on trying to be someone great and doing great things for God. Focus, important word, on being a humble, committed servant. Make sure that people regard you as... A humble, committed servant. Focus on simply saying yes to God and who he has made you to be. Be willing to be ordinary. Be willing to be average. Be willing to be normal. Be willing to be real. And then leave the rest up to God. Often I feel that way in real life also when I watch people. I probably do this a little bit too often, I'll I'll confess, but... But often I look at people and, and, and how they act and, and I feel like saying to them, don't try so hard. Don't try so hard. You're going way over the top. Um, just be yourself. Just be who you are. I hope this fits as a, as a closing little illustration. Um, if you find it hard to make the connection, then uh, forgive me. It's a story that I like to tell. I'm reminded of uh, one of the great Winnipeg Jets scoring guys of late, uh, Patrick Laine. Several weeks ago, I heard them interview him about a certain goal that he had scored. It was an incredible shot. And the interviewer said, tell us about that goal. And Patrick Laine said, well, I was coming down the wing and it was toward the end of my shift and I was unbelievably tired and I just closed my eyes and I shot the puck as hard as I could and it went in. And the interviewer says, no, 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 no. You're supposed to say you came down the wing. You took a look. You saw that little corner and you aimed at that corner and you you gathered all the strength you had and you rifled it into that top corner exactly where you were aiming. And Patrick Liney looked at the interviewer and he said in his uh, Finnish accent, he said, I'm not liar. A few days later, after scoring several more goals on uh, this most recent goal-scoring streak that he was on, he was asked what he was doing that was allowing him to score goals so effectively against all these high-profile goalies. And again, in his humble style, with his Finnish accent, he said, I'm just lucky, I guess. And I heard him say, I'm just doing what I know how to do. I don't know. I shoot pucks. I I know how to shoot pucks. I like shooting pucks, so I shoot pucks. It's what I'm wired to do. Just like someone else is wired to repair trucks, and the next guy is wired to milk cows, and the next one to speak in public. Just do what you're wired to do. 
as a committed servant of God, just be willing to be normal and be yourself. Don't try so hard. Don't be so, so over the top. Don't be so focused on being great. Just be focused on saying yes to being a humble servant of God and let him take care of the rest. Amen. You just finished singing uh, words that are completely servant words. I will be yours. I will be yours, oh, for all my life. I will go where you will lead me. And more and more servant words in that song. And so in response to that song and what you have just sung, all I want to say is the last two verses from 1 Corinthians, the whole, the whole book. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen.